0: Welcome to the Red Dirt Agronomy Podcast. My name is Dave Deacon and if you're following along at home this is episode 110. Well technically it's season one episode 10 but we put them together and make 110. Now if you would go ahead and take a second to hit the subscribe button on your streaming service so that way you'll always be the first to know whenever the Red Dirt Agronomy Podcast drops. As usual we're coming to you from Dr. Jason Warren's research lab on the agronomy farm at Oklahoma State University and in this episode we're talking all things Oklahoma wheat including the 2022 crop and what to expect with the potential of increasing drought in the area what insects to watch for and what variety works best in your area all of that with Oklahoma State University Extension small grain specialist Dr. Amanda Silva you will be able to find all the resources on our website reddirtagronomy.com now well, let's start with a quick trip around the table so you know who is whom. Now, the guy behind door number one is a cancer. He likes long walks on beaches and high-yielding wheat following an enriched trip. It's like sorghum. Why is
1: sorghum so low-limiting? Because
0: you put in crap ground. And he put corn in the good ground. That is Oklahoma State University Extension Precision Nutrient Management Specialist Dr. Brian Ernell. Now behind door number two is a guy who spends a lot of time on Highway 412 between Stillwater and the Oklahoma Panhandle. He was voted by his high school as most likely to doppelgang for Matthew McConaughey. Well, I mean it was kind of a small school, and he's known far and wide for his research into Oklahoma soils. I'm 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 not even I don't even know why I'm talking.
2: Because, I mean, like, I'm, I'm so bad at growing wheat. Uh, Brian should be talking. I am so bad at growing wheat, it's not even
0: funny. Those are the golden tones of Oklahoma State University Extension Soil and Water Conservation Management Specialist, Dr. Jason Warren. And finally, behind door number three is a guy who once rescued a family of ducks that fell into a storm drain. He rewired his Nintendo 64 in college to create a farming simulator and can leap any soybean plant in a single bound, especially the newly emerged ones. Of course, we're talking about Oklahoma State University Extension Cropping System Specialist. You said last
3: year that if you grew wheat, it was basically going to be a failure across the state. So I guess
0: the question we have to ask is on your ground, are you going to grow?
3: All right, so it is going to be a great wheat year across the state. Dr.
0: Josh Lofton. If you'd like to ask... Ask the group a question, then jump over to reddirtagronomy.com and leave a question there or send an email directly to podcast at reddirtagronomy.com and we will discuss your question on the next podcast. Let's start out with advice for producers who are dealing with a few insects that they may not be used to this time of year with an update as of July 17th, 2022 with Dr. Josh Lofton. You are listening to the Red Dirt Agronomy Podcast.
4: Yeah, I
3: mean, bl- blister beetles is just one of the things uh, that that are are starting to be an issue. Um, we're seeing uh, just pockets of them. I mean, that's the that's the big thing with pockets. We're we're also seeing bigger pockets of Japanese beetle also showing up in like soybean fields and stuff like that. So um, it's one of those things that that now is the time that you need to scout and then to to be quite honest, you got to make the decision on on. It, the the crop and your application on uh, a lot of these at the application is relatively cheap per se but you're still you know a lot of people are are at that threshold that they're going to need a rain in the next seven to ten days and it does not look like that's too promising so uh, you get to really start making that evaluation because it's not one of those things with things like a, a whole group of japanese beetle or a good chunk of blister beetle that you can just wait and see if we can make that application. It's it's time to make the application to save the crop or you just say that the crop is too far gone the heat and the drought are going to get it and so I need to do something. The biggest thing is we've we've seen blister be- or yeah, we've seen blister beetles and things that we don't normally see blister beetles and yeah. Brian's had some in corn. Uh you know one of the one of the crops are really not supposed to go in really only you know I talked to Tom about that and he said really only when they're desperate Mm -hmm. that they'd go into um but it you know they had a perfectly good soybean around so i mean it's just you know folks that are that are you know looking to roll up corn or roll up milo you know make sure that you know we have a good lookout on things also you know they're going to be an alfalfa and stuff like that so if you have enough alfalfa to make some cuttings you just make sure you don't have any blister beetles before you hay that out
1: what what product would you run for blister beetle, and is there, I'm assuming there's a layback to when you can swath it, because I'd be thinking about that thing, too, because if you've got blister beetles in now, they're defoliating. Yeah. You're losing hay value if you're going to roll it up, yep. but what's that layout time from spray to, so it, what products do you run for blister beetle? Really,
3: just any pyrethroid's going to work. Um, the the question then becomes what what pyrethroid is going to mm-hmm. depend on your your. Harvesting interval for a hay crop, um, <clears throat> and, and and you know just check the label because I'm I'm not entirely sure if that's from haying or if that's to feeding. I, I'm I'm pretty sure that's they have grazing restrictions, so that would yeah. probably be to feeding. Um, so if you if you are gonna lay it out in the field for seven days and then it's gonna bail up or something like that, you might you might have that you know to where you can cut relatively soon after. But you know, just check the labels and stuff like that. That's the most important thing. The biggest issue that I think is building right now is that if you start looking at grasshopper numbers, they're getting pretty substantially high. Um, yeah. And all we're gonna need is a new lay and you know a new group of uh new brood of grasshoppers coming out and then we're going to start to have some issues and and that's where things get a little trickier because you have to get grasshoppers really early um because things like loris band we don't have on the docket anymore and that's what we used to go out and get these very very tough things like you know uh two and three molt grasshoppers you know loris would be able to go get you but you know that's not an option anymore so um we have to make sure to get grasshoppers really really early because once again pyrethroids will work if they're very small nymphs and and that'll that'll just be something you can go after but uh you know once they've molted a couple times and they're bigger grasshoppers which is where most people will see them you know i i'd I don't trust the efficacy of just pyrethroid out there on big grasshoppers. the The big thing is that on these hot and dry years, the grasshoppers always seem to be an issue the last two weeks in July. And if you don't know, we usually have this when it rains uh, periodically. There's a there's a uh, I think it's a fungus Mm -hmm. that actually will keep naturally keep the grasshopper population in check. But since we've been so hot and dry in our dryland fields, particularly fungus is just not going to be there and so we don't have that natural control of grasshoppers like we normally do and so this is those kind of years that we're going to have these things that that kind of pop up on um, various other things and and i think that's why blister beetles have become such an issue because we just even if you go drive around we don't have the pigweed volume we normally do and we don't normally see blister beetles you know go this bad into crops, but we don't have the pigweed numbers that we do that we normally do and that they prefer the pigweeds and so they're just moving off into soybeans and, and other crops just just going after it. The the good thing is is that some of our other things we don't have we haven't seen the, the stink bugs, we haven't seen that bad. We've had some people I've had some people call about, you know, whirlworms being a lot worse than normal. I, I don't I haven't seen them be worse. They, they potentially are in pockets, but I also think we have a lot less vegetation, so it looks definitely worse than it normally does. So, the good thing is some of our normal pests seem to be not flourishing or not overdone, but some of our other ones are are more kind of on edge ones that we don't typically deal with on a year-in-year-out basis in our crops are are really uh, really high this year.
0: Are are you seeing uh, the blister beetles in a certain part of the state, a certain part of the region, uh, or or is it just pretty much anywhere in Oklahoma?
3: I mean, they can occur anywhere. We we had the you know we posted on Twitter and that was here in in Perkins, but uh, we've we've sprayed for them um, out east. We've sprayed for them a little bit in the west. So I mean, they're there. They're just going to be in pockets they're not going to be like this big widespread thing, like potentially the grasshoppers or something like that. will be, they'll just be in these little pockets that just pop up here and there. And, and once again, they're, they're very hard to appropriately scout for because they will be on field borders and stuff like that. in very small numbers. And then two or three days later, they'll just explode and move on. So, um, it's just been one of those things that, you know, for us on small plot trials, they can take out a trial in a weekend. No problem. Um, for you know, bigger production fields, they'll just take a big chunk uh, out of the field. Uh,
1: I was seeing on Facebook, Washington County was posting the uh, information on blister beetles, so they must be getting quite a bit of problems.
3: Yeah the the biggest the biggest things that I've seen are, are people finding them in alfalfa, mm-hmm. which I mean it's it's common. There's there's documentation and documentation on what you do with alfalfa to make sure you don't have blister beetles. So I mean that's that's a common thing um, and. and you know the soybean will probably just be hit or miss, depending on how much weed weed uh, pressure you have in the field.
1: Jason, so Josh mentioned I've, we've seen a lot of this conversation on Twitter. Um, Josh mentioned rolling up corn and soybean. Yeah, what's what's the impact? You you look at this going into this season. Is there the The hay's going to have value economic value, but what's yeah. what's the is there is there enough <clears throat> negatives to be thinking about not rolling it up that you should keep that cover on the ground as we go through nutrient wise cover wise I mean you're <clears throat> soil
2: water con so conservation it cer- me it would certainly depend on your rotation you know if you're going into wheat it's not going to make a hell of a lot of difference on wheat in fact I mean that's just wheat doesn't respond to residue unless there's very specific rainfall pattern conditions that would allow it to and that would be you know a wet fall excessively hard rains that are going to run off if you have the residue you're going to get more water in the ground and have a better start to your wheat crop but otherwise it's it's not going to make that much difference i mean if you're going into summer crops next year particularly you know, later planted stuff where you're going to get into the heat of the summer, the residue is going to be pretty critical. And, and then it's, you know, it all kind of depends on where you're at and what your rotation is and how bad you need the freaking hay and the money off the hay. Because, I mean, I, I don't know what's going on in Texas. It's crazy. Like, you know, you mentioned Twitter. They're talking about long lines of cattle trucks hauling cattle to town and I mean, that's going to happen. I,
1: I talked to a company guy the other day that said they're, you know, they're rolling up corn and soybean all throughout south-central Texas, and it's just moving north. And, well, even um, some other folks in Oklahoma, I've been seeing enough notice in Oklahoma about soybeans getting Western laid Kansas. down. Yeah. Eastern yeah. Oklahoma.
4: Yeah, Western, everywhere. Yeah.
1: So Rendell's up in Ottawa County talking to them the other day. You know, we go through, and you drive. I drove up to, to Miami last weekend, corn is seven foot eight foot tall it looked amazing and i asked zach how's everything looking He's like well the edges look good yeah you get in there there's no ear so we have massive biomass mm-hmm.
2: yeah but they've got no There's ear a side. lot of corn like that yeah there are a lot of dry land corn down here and, and like you say you look from the road oh yeah it's like oh happy happy yeah. and then you get up on a high spot on the road and you look out over the field and it's all you
3: yeah. know brown yeah the the toast the big thing is you know we've gotten a lot of questions about nitrate toxicity and how you manage hay and stuff like that with nitrates and you know that that also changes your dynamic on what residue is going to be left in the field with how much how much stock you have to leave and yeah. and that kind of thing. So
0: Cause
2: with corn, you know, with milo and like forage sorghum and sorghum sedan and stuff, if you got a potential high nitrate issue, you can cut a little high uh-huh. to get less of that high concentrated. Nitrate in the stock down because that's where a lot of it is, right? Mm -hmm. But on this corn that's burned up, I mean, is it going to have a lot of high nitrates in that stock? Particularly once it's tried to make the grain, whether it's made the grain. I think it was Karen Jones that tested some corn that went high,
1: and so they're going to leave it in the field to graze it. So there, I mean, while corn's not what we expect to test high in nitrate, it's one of the last things with with the conditions we have. It grew early would have had access to a lot of available nitrate just because the last crop wasn't used, wasn't leached. It was there, so we had, during that period where it could grow, we had a lot of evapotranspiration. We had a lot of uptake in nitrate, which means we probably had uh, excessive excessive accumulation in the plant or uh, just um, luxury. That's what we're going to get to, luxury consumption. And when you have luxury consumption of nitrate in a crop such as corn or sorghum, and then you have this drought stress, Nitrate's pretty good, good, yeah. and it's gonna that stock on those are gonna that nitrate's going to be higher on that corner crop. But yeah, can and, you graze it? Put a little little roughage out there, beat down the stalks. Yeah. Do you want to mix it? You know, there's a lot of folks talking about haylage, silage, mm-hmm. those kinds of things, and that that's probably
2: well. And that's <clears throat> like I say, going back to cutting height. You know, if you go out there and you can at least test it while it's standing, then that's the first place you can make a decision on what you're going to do. And if it's high at the bottom of the plant, you know, you can cut a little high. And the benefit of that, you know, you ask about oh, the detriment of of taking mm-hmm. this biomass. And you always worrying about the ground cover. Well, ground cover is good. And if you take it all off, you know, you can have potential problems, particularly if you're growing a summer crop the next year. But if you're pulling all this nitrate out of the bottom foot of the freaking plant mm-hmm. versus cutting it high and leaving it, That's as, I mean, you can gain a lot of benefit from doing that if you've got high nitrate stocks in Milo and corn and then forage sorghum and all that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So it'd be a good idea to check it before we start just going out there and rolling it up to hell won't have it. Because I I think, I I don't know, I grew up in cattle country and I know they're going to be sucking wind. And, And I know guys right now in the panhandle that are like at our research station, Cameron. The stu- superintendent, he told me that somebody drove by and then called him and asked if they could roll up the weeds on a pivot. Mm, yep,
3: that's fine. I mean, because we've right. got to go that's rolling thing, it you, up. You're talking about roughage. Yeah. We just don't have a lot no of that to go you're, around you're right, either. I mean, I mean it's, it's not like we have a ton of Bermudas. You know, and, and native hay yep. that's just kind of sitting around. So that that last mesonet
1: days, uh, the the wettest on record map that they yeah. put out, where we have that swath basically from northeast Oklahoma that cuts down through that so um, of the last 130 years, uh, where you rank as wettest, and there's a whole brown swath of 130. So yeah. we're the driest on record for this period. Yeah, uh, and it cuts through from northeast over kind of south of Enid and drops down yeah well yeah, t- we're
3: we're t- we're above one twenty at every part of the state except for the Panhandle, which yeah. is at at eighty eight so yeah and and they're, like you said the dream out there. Yeah, yeah they're they're in a, that <laughs> oasis, but uh you know that northeast to central right in through Stillwater yeah. down through Oklahoma City down through the you know our more you know central part of the state that you know that's that's one thirty and, and that's potentially the that, driest yeah. year on record to to date. That, and that's
2: brutal, dude. I yeah. mean, east east of Oklahoma City is – and we saw this back when Brian and I first started, or in 11 and 12, is the eastern half of the state is not built for this crap.
4: No. Nope.
2: And and they uh, – I mean, the, the the impacts on the eastern half of the state will be so much more intense yeah. because they just aren't built for it. They're my, my t- and I'm not being negative to any grower or landowner in eastern Oklahoma mm-hmm. – I'm just saying their mentality is not set up for it. Their production practices are not set. At least the guys out west. I mean they they've done it and they well, do it regularly. The, the soils aren't built for it No, the soils aren't built for it.
1: Soils are not built for a deep well. You know they don't hold moisture. A lot of lot of those soils are that clay at depth. Uh, you know, yeah. going down to 12 inches to find a heavy clay that's not going to hold water is pretty no, common. So you don't have the water holding capacity. So they're drought. You know they go dry so much quicker than out west. So it's typically, and they've been
2: longer of, without rain than a lot of places out west. <laughs> well, yeah, it's you, brutal you talk? Yeah, maybe. Yeah,
4: <laughs> we should but probably it, talk. It, week. Yeah,
2: so we, we should talk. talk I'm <laughs> but it, 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 it's just like the cattle deal and the forage mm-hmm. deal. I don't know. It's not good. Well, and, and, and I mean, it, it's not. I think a lot of it.
3: You know, we'll you know yeah. bring in Amanda to this conversation. A lot of it's going to depend on how much wheat pasture we can actually get in this year. And you know, we're we're not but a couple weeks. You know, six weeks or so uh, from we're going to start you planting. Really wheat. need to start start looking at wheat. So what uh, <laughs> what are, what are we looking at from a wheat perspective?
5: Well, well, we already didn't get much forage last year, yeah. so. Hopefully we'll we'll be planting by what, mid September. It depends if you're graze out a little earlier than that.
3: Oh, well, you know Labor Day's right around the corner. It's yeah it's time. <laughs> mm.
5: It seems like wow, well, I just finished harvesting. I'm not <laughs> ready for that conversation yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
4: oh.
0: So I guess let's let's just take a, a trip down memory lane. How how was the twenty twenty two wheat crop overall across Oklahoma?
1: Should we introduce Guest day, i i think
0: we ought to do like the name that guest oh name that guest. Yeah. yeah okay okay you're right okay. we need to you, introduce we'll
3: put the put the brian can you provide us a little game show song <laughs> I like a, <laughs>
0: as, as everybody can see at the bottom of the screen it says right there yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is dr amanda silva the uh, small grant specialist here at oklahoma state university and and um, Amanda, you've been with OSU three years? Four three three years. Okay. So this is your 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 your, your I guess third crop, second crop yeah. officially? It'll
5: be the fourth okay. uh, planting okay. season. Okay, yeah.
0: okay. Yeah. Uh, and and has this the most challenging the toughest? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> the, 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 the one going in that we're about to do right now?
5: Yeah, in the year that we just Went through also. It was really, really difficult, and actually, analyzing all the data from this year was one of the hardest. So variable, and really, I was just trying to save everything that we did. Uh, Look at the panhandle, didn't get any rain, so producers didn't get any rain since planting, but we're able to get good data from there. We lost a trial in Southwest because we didn't have. good stand there, a lot of variability. The drought was so much that when we thought about harvesting it, it was all taken over by the weeds. And yeah, it was really tough, tough year. And, but some producers were, were able to, to harvest something and, and, and the wheat prices really helped.
0: It seems like every year it's something. Yeah. And, and last year, couple of years it's been freezes and and uh you know this year it was the lack of moisture and and going across the state and looking at, at several of the wheat crops it looked great from the highway kind of like what jason was saying about the corn it looks great yes. from the highway but whenever you get out in it and you stand over that wheat crop and you look down and it's thin and it's and you can see the cracked ground underneath it it, it kind of you take it back from it but you know there's there's that resilience from all the wheat producers you know next year we're going to do it so it, 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 i don't want to i don't want you to handicap the, the 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 next wheat crop but there's there's a lot not in the favor of the next year crop
5: yeah there's a lot going on yeah. not only here right. but also in the world exactly and yeah which brings a lot of stresses, and but yeah, like you said, our producers are resilient, our crop is resilient, so we have to remain positive, even though the conditions now okay. uh, do not look really promising. But input costs are on the mind of everyone. Last year, maybe a lot of people had already bought their fertilizer. Um, we didn't have issues with disease, but we did have issues with brown wheat mites which is not a very common thing. That was a challenge to find products. Um, but anyways, uh, we'll see, we'll see. Um, we're really hoping to to be able to get a good stand, to have some forage to feed our cattle, but we'll have to, to play by ear like well, that.
0: Well, and, and so many, I mean, that's, that, that's one of the advantages of a, of a wheat program like OSU. There, there's always a variety that works in a part of a state that, that is able to stand up to many of the conditions. And, and this year, the producers are really going to have to study their wheat varieties and, and study the, the, the data that you gleaned from the last crop mm-hmm. to help make that decision for what variety do I put in the ground? What what, what battle do I want to go against? Is it is it the the uh the 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 potential for a fungus or which i don't know that we'll have that problem this year but um or or what do i want to attack and what can i manage while i'm managing this crop
5: exactly yeah and and it's a it's a great advantage that they have with the information that we develop that we plant trials throughout the state and give that information it's all available on our website and yeah picking picking their battle so that's going to be important.
4: What did
1: any uh, varieties jump out or what, what kind of give us an overview of what you saw with this last year? I've, I saw some things in the field that I wasn't expecting with certain cultivars, so what, what did you see?
5: Well, maybe some varieties we had not seen experiencing a drought like this year, so maybe some varieties didn't perform as we expected this year, but it's just because we discovered it wasn't as drought tolerant as we thought.
2: Yeah. Or, And that's, you know, because I got to hang out with you at some of the field days out west, northwest Oklahoma. And I was amazed, like, that some of this freaking weed survived. Mm-hmm. Like this stuff out by Balco. Holy crap. Yeah. I mean, it looked good.
5: It looked good.
2: And, and there were varieties that performed pretty well. And then there was some that, like you say, that may have been perceived as drought tolerant that...
5: Were not doing well, yeah.
2: Is that true?
5: Yeah. and yeah. And I think also... It was just their, the drought, the drought also in, in the fall or their ability to tiller or not tiller that also really influenced their stand later on. Yeah. But really their ability to produce grain was the. Yeah. Yeah. Because I've got a phone
2: call like uh, from a news outlet and they're, you know, they left a message Mm -hmm. asking, you know, what farmers can do and varieties and all that stuff and, and the. You know, naturally, our environment selects for some level of drought tolerance, but damn.
5: Yeah. How, yeah. how
2: far you, I mean, you can't grow, hey, you know. Somebody was asking me or making a comment about, you know, some irrigated, I guess it was you, Brian, about down southwest. Every time they irrigate, the crop grows a little bit, and then it stops. I'm like, well, yeah, that's how plants work. <laughs> no, it, you didn't say it, but I you were telling me a story <laughs> about somebody who said it. But, I mean, the wheat is it, yeah. some of the, like, some of them yeah. look damn good yeah. and then mm-hmm. some of them look like hell.
5: I was yeah. actually when you talk about balco, I was yeah. really surprised this year to see that short season wheat do yeah. so well yeah. there.
2: Did it do good? Yeah. Yeah, it
5: was actually an experiment. I even mm-hmm. when we were there even mentioned to to producers. I was just putting there to see yeah if that is an option yeah. for an extreme dryland environment if having a shorter season wheat would be actually helpful for their system should we really start breeding for wheat with reduced season but that was this year was so different that we need more years for sure to know that Mm -hmm. but i was very surprised about it
4: and
2: the the challenge is is if you could if you could get a good forecast for (laughs) august through may then, then you can make that decision. Mm-hmm. And, and we can I can make right a lot here. of decisions it, if you can give me that for. Yeah, <laughs> and and, and, and <laughs> tell me what it's going to do for the next year. I'll tell you. Exactly. Yeah, but what's the ramifications of you know if you have if you plant that, yeah. you know, with the expectation of drought, and you're going to combat the drought with that, and then it starts freaking raining. What's the downfall of doing that? I mean, are you going to clip the, the yield pretty good on that short season in a good year?
5: I think what it will depend in that scenario will be freeze. Uh, so that could be something that y- we could get caught yeah, with, yeah, because yeah. there we planted at the same time we planted others. So in good years, I do expect it to do really well. Yeah. But if we planted the same day, like we did there, if, as a mm. for demonstration purposes, we could get caught with freeze. But it
2: matures earlier.
5: It matures earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's everything earlier.
2: Yeah, that's brutal.
5: So we could make it more. We don't have scientific data on that yet, but it it could be more nitrogen use efficient. It could be more water use efficient because yeah. it has a reduced season. So it's there is a possibility that those varieties with reduced season are more efficient on the way they use resources. But if we get caught by those late spring freezes, then that could be a.
1: Yeah, I've noticed up at the the Kansas stuff that I did. That some of the. The OSU experimental did really well. That was up there, and then two of the Colorado states, some of the shorters, did really good. But it, it's going back, and that was my question. It's like, do you just drop in and say, okay, everybody, every year is going to be this way, or no?
5: I think that's diversity? why it's good to, yeah, sorry. No, you go. No, I think that's why it's good to have different, mm-hmm. just have different varieties.
2: Yeah, diversify.
5: Diversify. Yeah, I don't know about blending all on the same field.
2: No, I don't like that either. That's like, <laughs> that's like multi-species cover cropping. I don't know if you're going to get all the yeah, good stuff yeah. out of each one and versus just planting I like like one yeah. side of the
5: field, even like diversifying maturity. I yeah. think that's so important, especially for those late spring freezes that we we have so often. I yeah. don't know
1: if you know this, either one of you or all three, because I don't... On average, how many different varieties will a single farmer run? That I
2: don't know. What do you think?
5: I would say two
2: i was thinking two or three
5: maybe. yeah <laughs> what
2: do yeah. you think jason well based just on the people i know and talk to i don't i mean yeah two would be a good average because they don't maybe three
5: unless companies. they're seed dealers and they're yeah. trying to because it's so
2: much e- i mean you know if you're seed. if you're buying seed wheat and then you're planting it you gotta you know how about you know you got a field where you're going to plant your seed wheat and then hold that back I mean, the more varieties you have, the more storage mm-hmm. containers you have to have. Whereas if you just have one, you just fill everything with that one. So it, it but it makes sense. I mean, it, it's just like everything else. If you diversify mm-hmm. the genetics on your farm to be a good, you know, suite that's going to situate with some variation, then you won't have In
5: And that diversifying and not actually blending, it's a very important thing even for fungus well, that's development what I was thinking. yeah so when you grow mm. like different varieties with different susceptibility all blended you could actually that's a
1: disaster. put
5: more pressure on that resistant gene in yeah. talking that simple simple terms yeah. but you could you could put pressure on that and break the resistance Because faster. you're basically
1: supporting the growth of that pest yes. near a resistance, which means it has more yeah. pressure on it than having a whole field of something with resistance and have
3: less than pest pressure. That's interesting. Because yeah. It's more bad. risk to
5: mutate yeah. the fungus and isn't break the, the resistance.
3: Like, Wasn't the primary reason initially to, to deal with disease? Because so you would get one that was like stripe rust and one that was leaf rust because you didn't know which one you were going to get that year, so...
5: Yeah, but then I'm talking on the same pathogen in mm. that case. So yeah. growing varieties susceptible to spring re- to mm. s- stripe rust. Yeah, um, that yeah, not to stripe and well, growing susceptible at all. I think you just you're just increasing the the fungal population mm. and increasing the chances of breaking the well, genetic resistance for varieties that are nearby. But I know there is some controversy on the discussion of blending. Mm-hmm. In yeah. I, I guess that's my perspective, but I know there there are different perspectives on that.
2: But yeah, I mean, like blending. I don't know. I'm not a pathology guy. Yeah, but, me neither. But it's you know, it seems like it's more managerial, <laughs> managerially easier if you have you know if you're gonna say you got a variety that's susceptible, but it's a it's a thoroughbred with respect to yield and quality and all that kind of stuff. You plant that over here, and then you. You plant your workhorse over here that can handle anything, and mm-hmm. you, I mean, you, if you're going to blend them, well, why would I blend them and have two quarters that I'd have to spray to control the, the the disease on the one variety when I could just put that one variety on a quarter and only have to spray the damn exactly. quarter?
5: Exactly. But that's also mm-hmm. on the on the case that we usually mention. Like, be aware of what is the resistance mm-hmm. yeah. of your variety because sometimes. People are not so aware, okay, this is resistant, this is not, so do I need to fungicide or not?
2: Yeah. Well, and that's another reason why guys probably, or or farmers don't have a lot of different varieties because they go out, look at a field, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to spray the whole damn farm. <clears throat> right? Because mm-hmm. it's, e- I mean, it's easier, maybe,
4: Our but side, you're not
2: as yeah. resilient. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and and times like this make us think about things to make us resilient.
5: Yeah. And if we can plant something that is resistant, and you don't have to spend money with fungicide, that's
2: yeah, yeah. I've 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 always I, I haven't ever figured that out because you know if you got stuff that's high yielding and it's res, it's susceptible, and you just plan on spraying versus planting stuff that's resistant. I don't know.
5: But not as high. I, you I'm, I'm,
2: I'm not even, I don't even know why I'm talking.
5: Because,
2: I mean, like, I'm, I'm so bad at growing wheat. Brian should be
3: talking.
5: I'm so
2: bad at growing wheat, it's
3: not even funny. They, they
5: no, but actually, that,
3: they did that with sorghum. There was a lot yeah. of folks, especially the further north you got in Oklahoma, particularly once you got into Kansas, you know, with the sugarcane aphid. They yes. said literally, it is. More economical to to grow KS five eighty five, which was extremely susceptible nice uh, hybrid, yeah. and and just spray it twice than it was to grow some of the early SCA tolerance. Yeah, because yeah, the, the yield was, of five eighty five in those conditions was, were just exponential compared to the early SCA tolerance. Great hybrid. So yeah. I I think there's there's that back and forth too that you got to judge on saying hey I got this one that. Maybe he's a great grazer, good yielders, or can take a beating and keep on going. Mm-hmm. I know I'm going to have to spray for stripe rust, and I'm okay with that. But it gets me all of my other things yeah. that I have. So it's I one of those things that it's it. it's good to to always take into account that these things aren't in a vacuum. We can't just say, well, we're going to we're going to have stripe rust resistance, but then, you know, give up that, oh, it's a it's a horrible grazer, you know, because yeah. I'm, I'm in a dual-purpose system, so.
5: But the good thing is that we do have a lot of materials out there mm-hmm, for yeah. producers to select. Like, I think at our trials at La Homa this year, we planted, I can't remember, maybe 55 yeah. varieties, 50-something. 50 mm-hmm. It's a lot. It's a lot of options, which actually it's... It's difficult when you have too many things to, to choose, you just don't choose anything. <laughs> you just yeah. keep with what you have. So
1: so if you're if you're talking to a producer, how do you walk through that okay, here's a here's a list of fifty five varieties and it's set down time with demand and you've got to walk through what what's some of the first things you start doing in that conversation?
5: <laughs> so the main the main thing is that there is not not like a a, a right or wrong variety because like like you're saying like joshua was saying it depends it depends how how they want to manage what they are willing to to manage so i guess the steps on the conversation would be what production system you are are you on dual purpose are you in a grain only and within that we something that they really need to be looking at are the some the ability of varieties to recover from grazing because we've seen cases that varieties produce a lot of fall forage in our trials, but they are not good mm-hmm. grazer and that means they cannot uh, recover from that canopy mm-hmm. removal.
2: And that's even if you take, if you stop the the harvest prior to hollow stem, they just don't grow back the biomass. To just the don't green. have the
5: gas on the tank, uh, something like that, mm-hmm. to to kind of build up back the mm-hmm. the canopy. Yeah, and they yeah. So that's, to me, especially here in Oklahoma, that wheat is heavily used as a a dual purpose. I think that's the main thing that they need to be looking at, and the data we provide helps. Mm -hmm. But, of course, their uh, own production system will will tell a lot, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
3: So I want to compare to what I normally ask. So if a grower comes to you and is like, I'm looking for a new variety, you know, the first thing you're going to do is a counter question. So what's your first counter question?
5: like what variety should i plant
3: well it, yeah they're like oh what variety should i plant what's, what's your the purpose? first what's the, what's yeah. the first thing you ask them
5: depends <laughs> <laughs> well you know the the first thing it, and
3: and this is this is one of those things that i don't i don't think we should overlook is that i ask where do you get your seed from normally you know because because the relationship with seed dealers and agronomists and stuff like that is ultimately important so Mm -hmm, yeah that's the first question i always ask is like you know what what where do you normally get your seed and and are you happy with that because that's it's like oh you know i'm I'm normally an s&w guy well would you be willing to try something else or do you like s&w because that's that that can cut down that fifty-five yeah. down to ten, real short in that's real true. short. Yeah, order. I
5: guess I, I don't have like step by step that I do.
3: That's my that's my. First I just do like I yeah. First, what I
5: really like to do usually is just to understand what they're doing. So that's why I say depends. Like even when I'm at a few days, they ask me, okay, so after you talked about all these varieties, what should I pick? <laughs> I'm not there to say it. My role there is just to give you all yeah. the information and you use that to apply to your own production system. And so I am really interested in learning their production system, but I, I cannot really recommend uh, one. I, I don't.
0: But that never the, stopped me no, from asking. No. Every but, year, I would always ask the, 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 the small grain specialist, Jeff Edwards, David Marburger, you. I would say, so you've seen all the wheat varieties across the state. What is your number one pick? <laughs> yeah. And every time well, uh depends on what part of the state and they'd start r- rattling and off they'd the different, answer, and they never freaking answer Yeah. Well, no. so even so I I the no, answer. <laughs> that's
3: that's a big that's a big thing that we've talked about. And I talked about it a lot with David whenever he was here. Mm-hmm. Um other crops or other states around the United States dependent on the crop will come out with a top ten list. Right. Mm-hmm. Oklahoma is one that has historically never never leaned a direction. But like our our neighbors to the east, several states come out with a this is your top ten list for this year. I mean which do you do you hold that it's truer to to like you said to just give all the facts or to say hey yeah this Yeah is-
5: because the decision makers are the producers. So when we do it's perspective, right? Opinion. So like you said, some people do, some people don't. We don't. And I agree not doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been asked and I I don't um, think I should do it because it will depend on a lot of factors. And so when you pull up those top uh, varieties, top top and yield, but there are a lot of factors that we should include and we know it varies it varies in the mm. state and it will vary on the production system and will vary on the way producers wants to manage it so really the decision who should be picking the top yielding or the top varieties performing varieties are the producers on their on their field for their for their reality so
4: yeah do,
1: do well, the purple people eaters do that uh, they do? Do they? Ooh. Wow. So, so so I was thinking just because we're so diverse, divert. right? I, I would hate to do a top 10 list and have to include yeah. Altus and Ottawa 10. County. I mean, yeah, if we look at Miami exactly. and, yeah.
3: and Hobart. I don't well, know if they I, do top 10, okay. but
5: they, they do something best peaks or something, oh. if yeah, I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. I,
3: I think they do. Well, I think I think they've done that in wheat, but I don't know if they do that. Like, I don't think they do that in, in grain sorghum. Of, but, like, soybean and mm-hmm. corn to the folks two states over. They Mm -hmm. definitely do that. And 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 back when I was at LSU, we didn't do it either. But there are some growers that would prefer, and I'll say, is the Mississippi State. There are some of our growers that when I was back in Louisiana would prefer us to say, okay, I don't want to I don't want to sift through 14 locations. Mm -hmm. Just tell me the top yielding ones and I'll make a decision from your top ten. As opposed to, oh, I'm yeah. going to try to sift through everything, you know. And and, and and that was, and so we had some Mississippi State farmers come to our information. We had some Louisiana farmers go to Mississippi State because it's just what they Personal what they preference wanted. of learning. Well, you, yeah. you rank them by,
2: I mean, you rank them in the location by yeah, year. You, yeah, yeah. And, the, and, and, and that's
5: what I that's what I say. So here is all the information. and, it's and easy, the and top
2: one.
1: We rank location. them
5: within a year. We give two-year, three-year yeah. average. I,
1: I like that two- and three-year average. I right? like seeing that. Multi-year average from the varieties. It, that helps me when I'm looking at site selection. Yeah, so they can cars. look
5: at it, and then in our case, they can look at yield side-by-side side with protein. Yeah. They can look at yield in a standard management practice, in an intensive management practice. So they can really use that to study and, mm-hmm. and decide what they want to give or take. Yeah. Yeah. You
1: do do. You do do. Are you still doing the like northwest, southwest, northeast, where you do the quadrants? Because at one time we did quadrant averages. Yeah. We threw some variety this trials year, together.
5: I didn't just yeah. because to do that. You in need a, more locations. <laughs> we need more locations in a region, but more yeah. than that, you need to make sure you have all varieties yeah. planted in all locations within a region. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So
5: so then if not, you're like taking out some of the varieties and yep. you're ending up with a list of 10 that were on all same locations. Yep.
2: And it could and be of a little distorted. Is, it, is that the deal? Is like some of the companies won't put them? No, it's they'll, just They'll space. cherry pick where they want them, right? Well, like space. Space.
3: Chickshane and Enid or chick chain oh, La or are you different than, well, you know.
5: The way that the program works, we have... Locations that we call regional, so those are the locations that variety um, companies enter uh, varieties, mm-hmm. yeah, but then we planted a lot more, which we call county trials, and uh, those we get in a little bit of everything and put in those county trials, so they're usually smaller, yeah, so instead of fifty now they are down to twenty five maybe thirty yeah. varieties, so we cannot have everything there, but we usually do have varieties that are adapted to those regions. So what they are doing now, uh, the companies, since last year, they are actually ranking their varieties for me. When they enter, they rank by region. Yeah. So what is that? Because some companies will have, I don't know, seven varieties that they enter. We cannot have that all in all trials. So then I want to know what is their preference for Panhandle? Do they really want in the Panhandle? Yeah. Do they want it Southwest? And then so they rank it, and then that's how we we assign yeah, the, the way
0: varieties way now now to go back to 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 your pick by you know county state whatever you provide all the data which is which is the way to do it and and then this gives the opportunity for the county educator to sit down with that producer and say they here here's all the data this worked well in this county and we can go out to your your land and and take soil sample and all of that and and really see which one would be the best variety for you for for that. Yes, exactly, exactly. Your job is to provide the data, and then they make the decision. Yes. Yep.
5: Well put. Look at that. (laughs) Two for two. Well, and I I will
3: say, you know, one thing that I've told county educators and growers that we've talked about on this is that sometimes your closest location is not your best location. Uh That's that's sometimes the, a lot of people get hung up that I'm, you know, I'm 10 miles away from this or I'm 20 miles away from this. But this one that's 50 miles away is actually probably a more uh, a better pick at comparing to my soils, to my rotation, to my mm-hmm. et cetera, you know, X, Y and Z. So that's a that's another thing to keep in keep an eye on. So it's not just, oh, this county did really well. It's like, oh, OK, you know, you're dry land, that's behind corn, mm. that's in, you know, really sandy soils. It's not this one. It's, you know, actually this one that's yeah, pretty far true. away.
5: Yeah. And this year, uh, what are, I guess I have a question for you, Brian. Oh, here we go. <laughs> no, I was just thinking because, well, we, we did this year, and we are going to continue doing it because there is some interest in, in our producers on – Seeing varieties' performance under a more intensified management. Mm-hmm. We know this year we didn't have any disease. Um, it was not the best year no. to maybe intensify that much, especially with fungicide. Mm-hmm. Of course, no point. Uh, but we still we still see some uh, response from the intens- intensive management. Let's say, lahoma, where we had just an additional, what, 40, 50 pounds of nitrogen. Mm-hmm. So what what did you see? What did you think on the on it's, the nitrogen this year? So
1: this year, and, and I was going to bring that up too, so I saw some really odd things this year, and we have a lot of intensified nitrogen work this year. We had a lot of work looking at timing. We did the Gallagher and Greenhammer mm-hmm. comparing those two at multiple timings. Um, had some other stuff, but it, it, at least three locations, and I've got this diagnostic report pulled up, uh, anywhere I had a heavy dose of preplant nitrogen, and especially if I added sulfur, I almost guaranteed a uh, confirmed fusarium wilt and splot blotch. Mm. So by putting more than thirty pounds preplant, I induced root rots.
5: Oh wow! And okay. fusarium
1: wilt. Where I didn't have it, it was by plot. So by plot, anything that had a heavy preplant nitrogen sulfur had those diseases right next to it, four foot away, disease-free. Just flat out. And I I picked that up at Kansas, so up at Caldwell, and I also picked it up in Stillwater, and I picked it up down south at Chickasha. So statewide, I had that same issue with with disease. Uh, What we saw this year, looking back at the Gallinger Greenhammer stuff where we can compare timing and intensity of nitrogen, um... We looked at those two cultivars applied in one of three. So we have a pre-plant nitrogen, we have an early spring nitrogen, and we have a late spring nitrogen. And basically looking at the combination of all three, either one, two, or those three timings. And then we have what we call the Enrich, which was an unlimited nitrogen applied either pre, early spring, or late spring. Mm-hmm. The spring, early spring application of uh, the high end beat everything. Wiped out the early pre on the, the high rate. If we look at just the low rate, the 90 pounds, which is something that I, I use 90 pounds of N because I expect the crop needs more, and so I can see, see differences in efficiency at the rate. The 90 pre uh, across all locations, across all cultivars, basically set the bottom uh, quartile. It was, it was one of the worst treatments we had in the system. It was the 90 pre and then the 90 in late March. Okay. The 90 in late March was effectively because it never rained it in. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <clears throat> the 90 early spring was one of the best. Uh, the, basically, of all locations, no plot that received pre-plant nitrogen period ranked in the top quarter. It was all a combination of either a 45-45 split, a 90 pre. I will say the 30-60, the uh, where it only had 30% pre, was, was okay, but it never beat a spring 45. Even the 45 in, in February and 45 in March outdid the 90 pre. Mm. And so my intensification is intensifying those applications off of pre plant. You know, Mm -hmm. moving off a pre-plant, doing multiple applications. We may not need multiple in-season applications. Mm -hmm. Last year we didn't, um, but then again, last year our yields are, you know, significant. We're we're cutting 40s and 60 bushels where I want to be 60 and 90 bushel. So my intensification is, for me and what I'm doing, if I want to manage i'm managing a smaller crop i want it to be smaller in the early fall i'm putting on my nitrogen if i want 100 bushel wheat my first shot goes down in january i'm putting on some nitrogen in january i'm probably coming in with a fungicide if there's soil moisture i'm coming in with a cheap fungicide at jointing. Mm-hmm. uh maybe that's my first shot of night or green up uh, I'm going to do a green up nitrogen, might have a fungicide shot at joining, might put a little nitrogen in it on it. And then if everything goes well, I'm going to top it off at hollow stem with a big dose. And then I'm going to hit another fungicide at flag leaf.
5: Okay, good.
1: And that's, that's been, even in the drought year, minus the really late nitrogen, that's been the most successful intensification. I'm looking at nutrients. I'm looking at biologicals. I'm looking at sulfur, manganese, copper, chloride, I'm looking at all that stuff, and sugar. looked at sugar. Algae, huh? Algae. algae. Michael, micro algae.
2: Micro micro, micro
1: algae. Algae. not not big, big algae. Micro algae. Algae. Algae, algae. Micro algae, huh? So yeah, Ma- had, macro
2: is not good. I don't know. That's well, what is, I've been using. This
1: is this.
3: That's your problem. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so you might have answered this, and Dave can cut it out if you did. But uh, um, it's it's staying. <laughs> so I, I know you've done that, you know, to where you're moving away from the pre mm-hmm. uh, in in grain. Are you doing that in dual purpose or 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 what no. what from what you've learned on this delayed nitrogen, can you adapt we, any of it to dual purpose? or are you going to have no. to do whole new trials? For no, no, purpose? no, So we've got dual
1: purpose work. Um, and thanks for keying that up. So we do have the dual purpose work, and the dual purpose work says if I'm going to have a crappy dual purpose year, just put it up front. Mm. Meaning if I'm not going to have a whole lot of growth and I want to have poor hay production, Putting on that 90 pounds up front is just fine. But if I'm going to have a year of a lot of growth where I have good grazing, it benefits me to split it up and put a decent shot up front, but come in in late fall, early spring, depending on the growth pattern, juice it up again, and that increase both production and quality uh, going through that early spring. Because mm-hmm. if we're going to, and I'll go back to it's all about soils and it's all about the weather, right, Jason? So. Mm-hmm. A a bad forage production year is typically a lack of rain. Yeah. A good forage production year is a presence of rain. Uh. Presence of rain creates losses of nitrogen.
2: <laughs> so simple. So simple. When was the last time we had a good forage year on wheat? This year had, had the, moments. Moments and spots.
1: And spots. We, we had probably some of the better wheat forage this year in
3: areas like 19.
0: Yeah, I was thinking a couple of years ago there was there was good forage.
5: Maybe nineteen. Yeah, yeah. I think nineteen I started was because the last really
0: I good
3: forge. Yeah. You ruined if it, if Amanda. I mm-hmm. did. It. <laughs> Don't <laughs> I worry, brought, he, he yeah, blames I, me for things all the
4: time. I heard I brought time, yeah, brought yeah. a bunch
2: of damn bugs up here. <laughs> he did, and then you ruined the forage. <laughs> <from there>. <laughs> <laughs> and I am just kidding, people. Amanda <laughs> no, didn't. No, 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 no. Josh did bring Josh, the bugs yes, here. But Amanda didn't do anything.
5: so brian and all that you were saying just to to clarify Mm -hmm. you saw that the same thing for both varieties right
1: yeah so so looking so so, and and why we looked at those and and i want to go further in with this is that their two uptake patterns Mm -hmm. seem to be different you've got much you've got the data and i'm just borrowing your data but they they grow differently yeah and uh You're just sending me TikToks of guys talking about plants growing and uptake curves. But by the way, that's another story. Um, But their uptake curves were different enough to justify looking into seeing did since the two crops have different uptake patterns, should we fertilize differently? And the and the answer was this year is even the Gallagher responded identically to the green Gallagher whooped green hammers tail end and all my stuff this Mm -hmm. year. Hmm. It was it was it was. Really good, good uh, yielding at all my locations, but it the patterns were the same. We looked at across site and, and crazy. And you guys know if we do statistics and we look at is location significant and site year significant and variety significant. And this year, location variety was not significant. They both responded the same way, same way. and had the same response pattern at two across different locations.
2: locations.
5: Yeah. yeah. So, which two things I guess uh, that at least what i noticed in our trials and i think mm-hmm. it seems like you, you did in yours applying nitrogen this year was a good decision yeah. even in very dry year like this being short um on nitrogen mm-hmm. although prices and everything but i think it was a it was a good management practice to yeah. to do and when you t- and when you say at uh, the the different patterns on the varieties what we, that study that we have together on gallagher Greenhammer, Double Stop, and iBub. So basically what we are seeing uh, on their differences in uptake patterns is on partitioning. So maybe like Greenhammer is a very good uh, variety for keeping up with both yield and protein. And so basically you're interested in seeing how is it using. So when you look at the season, we may not see differences in total nitrogen uptake when you compare it with other varieties, although you're still collecting data in analyzing it, but it seems like varieties that have higher protein, they're able to remain photosynthetically active until later in the season, so greater stay, stay green, greater accumulation of nitrogen in the vegetative parts, so stems and leaves, and so they can use that to remobilize it to the grain later in the season yeah. if that nitrogen is not all available in the in soil. But So it's all...
1: So th- that's a, that's intriguing to me because you you said that and I've been hoping you, we can get to that point on the research is that the totals don't look different on your total uptake so that means that the green hammer is a little bit uh, the green hammer tax is a little bit slower.
5: It could be it could be using it differently. Using yeah, it differently. yeah, but still that was that observation. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember, but it was from last year. Yeah. We weren't. Keeping up with the growth stages as accurately as mm-hmm. we should, so okay. we were harvesting on a on a calendar date yeah. and not on a growth stage date. But there is there is a chance for that, and mm-hmm. and basically what it's showing, if that holds true for when we mm-hmm. combine ears, when we look at more ears, uh, is that some varieties they may have. Uh, nitrogen let's say in the stem but they don't they're not as efficient in remobilizing it Mm -hmm. to the grain let's say green hammer i think it was actually in the leaves Mm -hmm. if i remember it had in in the stem too but sometimes even like the total won't change but then that partitioning the ability to partition to remobilize Mm -hmm. that nitrogen will change but now like you now that you're saying maybe for comparing green hammer and gallagher Mm -hmm. specifically maybe their totals changed i just cannot remember from top of my my head now
0: well, this uh, seems like a pretty good place to take a quick break, and uh, that's that's all the research leading up to this year. Now we're going to maybe take a look at what to plant, what the options, what the forecast. Jason's got his crystal ball over there that he's looking into to see what the weather patterns are going to be while we make our decisions for the 2023 wheat crop. He's bringing up the data right now. We'll discuss that coming up. You are listening to the Red Dirt Agronomy Podcast. While the doctors take a quick break, I wanted to remind you that the websites related to what Dr. Amanda Silva talked about are actually linked from our website, reddirtagronomy.com. If you have a question for the group, send them to us from our website, or you can send us an email directly, podcast at reddirtagronomy.com, or drop a tweet. Our handle is reddirtag on the Twitter sphere. Now let's jump back into the podcast since Jason has looked deeply into his crystal ball and checked all of the weather charts and should have a pretty good idea or guess of what producers should expect for this year's wheat crop when it comes to moisture chances. You are listening to the Red Dirt Agronomy Podcast. And as promised, we have the uh, weather outlook uh, by Dr. Jason Warren. He's, He's compiled the data. He's... He's decided yes. where and when it will rain, when to plant, when when the wheat will actually grow across Oklahoma. He has that level of knowledge, Jason. Where where and when will it rain?
2: Yeah, I don't think it's going to rain that much. Okay, uh, until or at least through September. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to dust a lot of wheat yeah. in. Yeah, uh, you know, and and over the last thirty days, you know, it's. Very dry all over.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, you've had some monsoonal rains coming through the panhandle and, and then maybe clipping a little bit of northwest Oklahoma. And maybe we can catch some of that random active God type stuff. But the forecast doesn't look good. And I don't know. I, I, it, it, I just got an email yesterday or the day before from some folks at OU that are we're going to do some stuff with them to, like, improve the connectivity between their modeling and their predictions and all that stuff and growers and, like, users of this mm-hmm. information. So I'm pretty excited about that. But, I, yeah, it doesn't look good. I think we're going to dust in a couple million acres of wheat.
0: So so with the OU side, did they hear your conversation about them on the podcast? Is that, is that why they came no, about? No, they, they
2: contacted me before that.
0: Okay, okay, I, just I, check I don't
2: it. know that they listened to the Red Dirt podcast. I'm going to have to. <laughs> You I should have to ever keep an it eye on there. that because I just refer them to the OU guys because I don't know if they want me to tell their name to the world. <laughs> yeah. you know? Some researchers are kind of sketchy about wanting their name out there. Yeah, but this guy's going to be good. I think he's going to yeah. be good to work with. He he's been a. Is it the the one we
1: have coming for winter crops? Yeah, good. We should get him on on RDA. So yeah. considerations for dusting in. I mean, you we'll, we'll go to Amanda, but you grew up in Western Oklahoma. Any any tricks of the trade dusting in wheat? things to be thought of?
2: I don't know. Earlier I said that I'm a horrific wheat farmer. I don't know if you remember that. So we need to get your dad on, is what you're telling me. He's a good wheat farmer. I don't know. Yeah. I just... Well, he grows rye because it's sand. It's (laughs) pH 4.5. And... (laughs) His mom told him he was stupid for growing wheat back 30 years ago and so he did it for a little while and then he figured out she was right. That's a story he tells. Really. Um he's going to get mad if I he listens to this. Hi Jason's but that's dad. true. Hi.
4: But anyway,
3: I don't know. I mean, just dust it well, in, you, wait for rain. You said last year that if you grew wheat, it was basically going to be a failure across the state. So yeah. I guess the question we have to ask is on your ground, are you going to grow to plant wheat. <laughs> All right, so it is going to be a great wheat year yeah. across the state. I don't know that I'll
2: ever plant wheat again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean... <clears throat> Yeah, undusting. So, dusting. So, ended, variety, yep. temperature
1: sensitivity, things along those lines. What What do you look at on varietal selection for dusting? Yes. Is there any decisions there?
5: Well, there is on the on the early, very early planting that some varieties are uh, sensitive to germinating in hot soils. Um, dusting in. It's actually that is on a producers uh, field by field cases kind of decision so some people were comfortable with just dusting it in so right planting it shallower than usual and instead of waiting for a rain and planting on yeah kind of optimal conditions uh, if they're dusting in yes there is some issues i would say to not go too shallow That could be a problem, especially later, later in the fall, if you go too shallow on that. Um, But But, I, I understand we did that a lot last year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: Because we don't. I mean, I haven't really poked around any of the, and I guess I need to go look. But in in our continuous cultivated wheat ground, I mean, we don't have any moisture in that most Mm -hmm. places, right?
5: Mm
2: -hmm. I mean, there's no way to get to moisture right now no no way no way unless you're gonna plant a foot deep that's
1: my fear
5: with the get some listers
2: man
1: that that's my fear with the the forecast the way it's looking is that if i'm looking at early forage and i'm going to go as soon as possible and dust it in try Mm -hmm. to get it up we better have continued rain after it comes up otherwise it's going to come up and die because there's nothing down below to connect to Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And that's a
5: problem, yeah, because (coughs) sometimes we go there, we want to get it early, very early. Mm -hmm. And then you just get that little bit of moisture. The seeds germinate. Yeah. But then you don't have enough moisture to sustain that seedling development.
2: Yeah. We may have some areas where they've kept it clean, like up around Alva, Buffalo. I mean, I know they're drier than hell, Mm -hmm. but where they've got fallow ground. I mean, a month ago, they caught some rain if they got it in the ground, but it probably got sucked down in the middle of the earth yeah. uh, as far as the moisture <laughs> moving into the profile. But we ha- we didn't have those. Re- you know, wheat's a f- wheat cropping systems, are a f- it's a fascinating deal, and I'm sure things have changed over time. But a lot of what you get in that system from a moisture standpoint, downstate where it's continuous,
4: mm-hmm.
2: is the rain that you get during harvest Is the profile moisture that you carry through the summer? Then you get enough rain in the fall to germinate it, and hopefully everything gets connected, Mm and you grow the wheat. Yeah. And uh, we didn't. I mean, harvest went pretty damn fast Mm -hmm. because it did not rain.
5: Yes.
2: And it hasn't rained since most part of the state. So we
5: cut it all of our fields in eleven days.
4: All of your stuff.
2: Yeah. All over the state.
5: Yeah. God. Tyler put that together. He's rolling
2: heavy. Yeah. Keeping the highway and It was hot. eleven
5: days. Yeah, <coughs> I mean, we started cutting one location, and we got rain yeah. after ground was dry. Yeah, it was mm. nonstop. That's quick. Mm-hmm. But
4: just
2: for perspective, I mean, you've got you've got plots. How far out into the Panhandle?
5: Yeah, we do. So we have one at Hooker.
2: Is Hooker the far? Yeah. Well, we used to
5: have one at Keys, but now we have yeah. One at Hooker, and it's a a regional trial at Hooker, so it's big. Yeah. have maybe 50 varieties in there, and then one at Baoko. Yeah,
2: and then how far east?
5: Oh, the eastern eastern part that goes will be, used to be there, somewhere there, but Mm -hmm. we have one at Okmulgee Mm -hmm. now. So intensive management. Plots there, and all over along the and edge then and Walters, and yeah, yeah. So you're
2: all over. I it's all over the to, state, yeah. Yeah,
5: that's a lot of walk, a
0: lot of highway. So this, knowing what we know right now, uh, and and the possibility of dusting in plots or or dusting in wheat, what what should uh, producers be kind of walking through their mind right now, watching or like buying the seed or, or or making those decisions for the seed? What
5: what should they be thinking about? Well, especially if they're wanting to go early, just be careful, I would say, with volunteer wheat. We we have seen issues with that, and because those can host the wheat chromide and transmit virus to varieties or virus diseases later on, like wheat streak mosaic uh, virus. And I would be looking at planting varieties with seed treatment. And, yeah, it's difficult because you dust it in and you never know what's going to happen. And some cases that I've seen, plants die and they have to replant. But they want to try to get in there early. I don't know if we need to rush too much right. this year. So
0: So I, I, I was actually out in uh, the Texas panhandle yesterday. And, and I was talking with, uh, with a producer, a cotton producer. and And he was telling me that his... His 2021 crop he planted of wheat never came up. Mm-hmm. The seeds were still in the field, and, and then he went along and planted cotton on top of it. And he's had, yeah. since since he's been irrigating the cotton, he's had both Damn. crops come up. So now he's kind of in a position like, well, what am I going to do?
2: What wow. do they call that, Josh? Um, disaster. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it, I, I I thought thought it was, was some sort of uh, Intercropping. <laughs> <laughs> You got to be more positive, Josh. You've come got on. names for all this stuff. Think, it could be think a disaster. i a disaster. <laughs> come power. on. It's called multi-species cropping intercropping system intercropping yeah. ooh the I timing's like just
3: a little off your ti- yeah. your timing growing wheat
2: work. in the, the summer is gonna... the new thing josh <laughs> <laughs> because the canopy the cotton canopy keeps the wheat cool like it's in the winter sure. and it does fine especially in the 106
0: mm-hmm. degree weather yeah. it, it under the canopy it's what Sixty-two. No. <laughs>
2: yeah, it's the evaporative it's power of, of water. Six, you know, it it's evaporates and cools it so down. Be fine. Well, cools
3: and it down actually, down at that night.
5: makes me think. You know, growing uh, wheat in the summer, of course not. But we did plant some wheat up here in, in the station here in mm-hmm. Stillwater in March. In comparing varieties from Australia, mm-hmm. spring wheats.
2: How'd that turn out? Uh,
5: it actually, turned out really well. Uh, yeah, so we planted some winter wheat from mm-hmm. us, from OSU, that have a weak vernalization requirement, so they don't need much of a c- accumulation of cold days to, to transition, right, from vegetative mm-hmm. to reproductive stage. And some that do, like OK Corral, does have a higher vernalization requirement. Yep. Mm-hmm. So what you can see is the difference in, in of course, in yields, but in head number of heads uh, produced, uh, but of course, the spring wheat did much better than planting a winter wheat so late. But mm-hmm. we planted some varieties from Spain in November mm-hmm. that also turned out really well. Comparing, and we are comparing with the materials that we have here in the U.S. and
1: yeah. And so yeah. the Spain—that's a winter, though, winter type.
5: So that's the thing we that's don't really know. Oh. So we don't know what they are. They're not spring, full spring, but they may not be a full winter Winter. wheat. So it's what we call facultative Mm -hmm. wheat. And so we planted in in November because we didn't have enough seeds. So they're coming from abroad Mm -hmm. and it, it requires some cycles for us to increase. But yeah so they're we we don't really know what they what they are exactly as when we we talk about it.
1: What are those physiologically what do those Spani- spanish the Spain types look like? are they they upright are they tall short? What? they
5: were interesting like they they have this very bulky head, mm-hmm. like very thick head uh have like a wax in Mm their i don't know this bluish color like a very i don't it wasn't a a drought well it could be a drought stress but i don't think it was it was just a really a characteristic of some of the varieties Mm -hmm. but other than that i would say head size number of grains per head seemed to be higher than than the materials Mm -hmm. that we were comparing with from the us and yeah maybe didn't tiller as much Mm -hmm. um but produced uh bigger heads and more grains
1: so that'll lead me a little bit because you had a guest here on campus in november Mm -hmm. that your your professor uh from your doctoral program right or yeah you worked with him during your doctoral program uh, talking about the yield gap, or, or where where the next yield jump could come from? Could you kind of give a little synopsis of what he no, shared in November? Because that was so fat, you don't remember. <laughs> well, I guess the conversation was: Is it going to come from more tillers oh, or yeah. more uh, spikelets per spike? Yeah,
5: yeah. yeah okay, got it. Um, I think I think what we are seeing is that basically what we we could be doing its management practices that will promote so basically what what we we have seen in the literature in in our data is that yield can come from two uh yield components right so it's going to be grain weight or grain number per unit area which then translates back to grain numbers per spike Mm -hmm. per head and so as a summary to all that that we've seen in from when he was here and presenting and he already published a, a paper on that likely yield improvements that we'll see depending on management practices that we will be doing but any management practices that we'll do that will promote an increase in grain number grain's per spike that's the that's where the the yield will be coming from now there is some uh, biological limits and a lot of uh, things that will influence that. and But, yeah, that's... But
3: there, there was a good conversation that came out of that. Brian, you you had asked him on managing tillers yeah. and how that related to Oklahoma wheat systems. Do you remember? Yeah, so so, you so the
1: primer know? was, in, in I'm trying to explain in my own head why some of the delayed nitrogen work has turned out the way it has. And so... My only theory was partially tiller management, partially or er, crop management size, and then tiller management is that we're not producing the tillers to lose the tillers because we're we're not in an environment that's conducive to having a ton of tillers and mm-hmm. in fact, if you and i can't wait to get weighed uh here in August because i'm one hand when they talk tiller management on the east coast, it's not making more tillers it's actually managing for the right number of tillers, which is often less tillers. And so it, it's not pushing that. And so I'm going to tell you, Virginia and the East Coast is a slightly better environment than Central Oklahoma, Jason. <laughs> you, you you've been there. Yes, it's a much better environment <laughs> for growing crops. Crops. And so my thought was, is the the delayed nitrogen. The conversation was, is by delaying nitrogen, reducing tillers, could I be putting more spikelets or more berries per head? Mm-hmm by not having the resources lost to a tiller that's going to be aborted. And really curious about how many how many tillers are aborted in our average wheat crop. And so that that was kind of the conversation mm-hmm. line Josh is that I, I, no answers were were come from that, but
5: I guess there are no answers yeah. to that, yeah. We need to well, investigate. And, <laughs> and
3: I I guess the thing that that I took out of that is like how far can we actually push push biological limit? Here, uh, as compared to let's Mm -hmm. say like the the coast of Virginia Mm -hmm. or in my head the Southeast or the Mid South, where you know environment is often uh, the only well I mean except for this year, but you know a lot of environment limiting on wheat is you know is is it going to flood and yeah excessive rain and so like you know these cold snaps and freezes and drought and stuff like that don't happen in some of these areas where we do push biological limit is mm-hmm. how close do you think we can get here um compared to you know other other places you know virginia or right. e- even 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 like central europe and
5: stuff like that yeah it's it's difficult because when you look at I was just having one of my students working on that. When you're saying all those events, those climate events, the intensity of those like flooding and drought and all of those are going to increase. Mm -hmm. So it's a very difficult question to to answer. Of course, we can all discuss about it, but it's so difficult. Because, and that's where even like my study on the lake planting comes from. Because if we are going to increase the frequency of those... um, Oh, I, I forgot the word. But those climatic events that are...
1: Um, you want the acts of God kind of thing? Where <laughs> <we say that. laughs> the problematic. The problem- yeah, the problematic
5: <laughs> events that happen. Mm. So it's going to increase the frequen- the frequency of those. And so here we are trying to develop management practices for the weather that we have now. That varies every year, like we see. Damn. <clears throat> yeah so what do we do and so like i said that's where this lake planting study comes from maybe it's not the best fit right now mm-hmm. but will that be a good fit later on so i have one of my students putting together or trying to calculate the well first the the number or the frequency of dry uh, drought that we have in october so it seems like every uh, one year, in every four years, we have a drought in in October that causes producers to delay planting, mm-hmm. or in and delay emergency, mm-hmm. uh, which then puts the crop later uh, in the season. And then, when you look at the vernalization, the cumulative days of vernalization here in Oklahoma, it's decreasing. So that is using mesonet data from the past 20 years, 30 years. And so do we really need to start looking at varieties that do not require much of the cold accumulation dates uh, to transition, right? So lower vernalization requirement varieties. And so basically with all that said, do we need to be looking at alternative management uh, practices or alternative production systems in wheat so we can continue growing and, and not actually seeing a... A decline in, in our production here in the state. I've got a question.
2: So you you just said the number of vernalization okay. days is decreasing. Is that because of the temperature in the winter or the, the lateness of planting?
5: That's the temperature in the winter. So it, it indicates that our winters are getting warmer. And yeah. that was... I believe the calculation he did was in December, um, so mm-hmm. that is I think December or January, something like that. It was really on the winter when we 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 are really looking for those cumulative vernalization dates to and mm-hmm. use that. Yeah, so that is my so master student who is yeah. working on the, th- that. How study. many of
1: our cultivars need a significant amount of?
5: So, here in Oklahoma, varieties that are developed here, developed here, they don't really need many weeks. So, we can have varieties that may need, what, two, three weeks okay. of mm-hmm. those temperatures below 50 mm-hmm. Fahrenheit. Uh, some varieties, especially the ones that come from northern part, may need up to six weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, it varies. Varieties mm-hmm. do different than that, and that is, uh, with that study that we put here, looking at different winter wheat, mm-hmm. so like okay Corral yep. does need more than let's say Butler's gold. Okay. So Butler's gold yep. will be okay. That, makes sense. that Butler's gold is a short season, so we'll be okay maybe with a two weeks of renalization. While your OK Corral will need more
2: I had one question. I wanna back up to the yield gap thing. What is I mean, have you seen a number like on the physiological limit of yield of wheat? Not like we're environmentally limited here we have good years and bad, but if you had everything perfect from planting to harvest for hard red winter wheat, what's what's a top-end yield that... That is physiological possible. Is there data on that? You know, corn. You know, used to say three. You know, back when I was in college, it's ah three hundred bushel corn. That's the limitation. Oh, I should know now that. You know, you got I the think there is some fire. data. <laughs> <laughs> but would it? I mean, do you? <clears throat> and then now, you know, because n- no I can speculate,
5: sleep. but I think yeah. there is some data on that. This, so. this
2: is nothing but speculation.
5: This, yeah.
1: group, so I think you're you're We're fine with speculators.
2: <laughs> we do a lot of that.
5: Like, I don't know. Uh, I I mean, say here. Numbers
2: sometimes. <laughs> say numbers. One, two. <laughs> yeah. I just wonder, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because, you know, like I say with corn, that was always a fun one to ask an agronomist mm-hmm. about the physiological. And they said, you know, some would say, well, based on the number of photons coming to Earth yep. in this location, the best you could do is 300 bushel. Well, I've grown 300 bushel. Of course, I was out with photons are not limiting. <laughs> and, but, but. The, you know, you go to oh, Iowa yeah, or somewhere, yeah, and they're right, like right. popping five, yeah. six hundred bushel yeah. on their on the, the yield contest and, and all that stuff. They're limited on photons, in the and field. they're limited on the photons. <laughs> <laughs> but I just wonder—I've never heard that number on wheat. Yeah, I mean, I know Brian, he makes up numbers like a 100-bushel wheat. That's where I'm going with yeah, this Yeah, and song.
5: that's what I wouldn't make up. <laughs> <laughs>
2: make <Yeah>, I'm, <laughs> I'm just messing with I you, Brian. I don't make up my I'm re- <laughs> I
5: don't know. But.
4: I've
2: used your combine, and my 40-bushel wheat comes out of your yield monitor the same as your 100-bushel.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's
2: <laughs> your 40-bushel. I think I grew you <laughs> some wheat this year that was over 40 bushel. Yeah, the – I yeah. just need to have you do it. I'll put out whatever treatments I, I that's want. That's probably what we need to do. And then you just plant it and love <clears throat> it and put your special sauce on it, and then we'll all have a good week. But anyway, I just wondered. <laughs> Moving yeah. on.
5: And maybe that's something that we can try to, yeah. to look at with the project.
2: Yeah.
1: But j- just, I mean, yeah. knowing the hard red winter, Amanda, can you throw out a number <laughs> just theoretically what you think that if you could grow in a growth chamber – what what could it be? I don't know.
5: I don't know. <clears throat> Am I going to be too crazy here? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Because, I mean, on the, the softs, oh, yeah. you would think 180, uh, genetic potential okay. greater than that. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know if that, you know, is there something about the soft that just makes it so much... Higher potential, or we, or is it because is? uh, I guess my question, maybe you can answer this. So we have soft wheats. We know soft wheats typically have higher yields. Blah blah blah. This and hard wheats, is it because of the genetics and the way the plants grow, or because we grow hard red winter wheats in really crappy ground and we grow soft wheats where there's better environment? (laughs) It could be. It's like sorghum. Why is sorghum so low limiting? Because you put in crap ground and you put corn in the good ground. There, there, that is a, the environmental limitations also kind of come with yeah. the cult. The, I think the it's a
5: combination c- of both. Okay. Yeah. But we do, yeah, we do mistreat more well, our mm-hmm. hard red winter. A- a- and,
3: and you, you, you have like almost a feedback cycle, right? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. you breed in this environment. Mm-hmm. So yeah. then your top-end potential is based on oh, this environment, environment. Could you breed for stress. Balco. You know, yeah, you breed for <laughs> Balco. You don't breed for, you know, um, you know Manchester, you mm-hmm. know in the middle of the Midwest. Yeah. You know you you breed for this, so your your top end potentially goes down to increase your flexibility. Yeah. So um, it, it's one of those. It's it's that funny thing. It's that feedback loop that I feel like the when when I was back down south, it's you know wheat 120 bushel wheat was nothing. Yeah. I mean that was just, but it was also bred in that state where. Hundred twenty bushel was nothing, yeah. right? So you you breed for that top mm-hmm. end,
4: yeah.
3: um, and it's almost like I, I think it's almost like feedback to where you know maybe maybe the hard reds that are bred for flexibility is don't have the top end that the whites do, but not because the wheat's bad; yeah. it's because it's bred for other characteristics mm-hmm. that that aren't. But I I I would be interested to to see that number because it it would be very interesting to um to to see how how that environment does play play that mm-hmm. that spell and you know we've gotten when we did that when folks around with like not that we did it but the folks around the United States are getting closer to that biological limit like some of the you know the the whole thing now it's 550 bushel corn is you know the the biological potential or whatever well you got people that in those small plot yield mm-hmm. contests that are getting four four fifty four seventy five so we're not too far off what what is being theoretically mm-hmm. um the biological potential so it it would be very interesting yeah. to see what what that is and and realistically on our our wheats yeah. that are grown or and you know genetics of this this region what is that top end and how close are we actually getting some years to where just things kind of I mean, fall into place
2: yeah i mean what's the top end yield you've ever? cultivar like mean yield at a location here yeah like i mean i irrigated irrigated or whatever like no i would say dry land
5: since i've been here i would say what 120 120 something bushels per acre
2: that's the biggest number you've seen
5: yeah since i've been here Mm -hmm. yeah
2: is that about right brian
1: I i would say at least Visiting with people, I've, I've heard those numbers. I've, I can't say I've, I've yeah. run a combine through the It's so fun to talk bread, about top-end high yeah.
2: yields in a drought.
1: It's better Isn't than it? talking about
2: yeah, the drought. Yeah, right. I know. It kind of diverts my <laughs> frustration. So 120, I mean.
5: Yeah. That was one mm-hmm. year in Homestead, Homestead.
3: Mm-hmm. actually. That was last year, wasn't it? That's crazy. It was
5: before last year, yeah. wasn't it? Was it? The year
3: before last? Homestead. Well, I mean, not right. my last, fair last view, okay. year. That's Yeah, yeah. I think last year. Yeah. Yeah.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah,
4: it that, was and that
3: wheat looked. You know, it's it's the funny thing that when we grew we grew five and a half bale cotton. everybody's like, oh, i want to see that, and I was like, it, it doesn't look great. That the the wheat yeah. looked woolly. It was like heads all over the place and yeah. a ton of biomass. It
4: was just you so run cold. the combine
3: through it, and it's mm-hmm. just got so many heads, and you know, it 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 looked great going through. But yeah, yeah it, it doesn't. It's not like you can look at the turn row and be like, oh yeah, that's 120 bushel mm-hmm. wheat right there. It's yeah. just.
5: Yeah, and it, I mean, the average of that trial, I think, was 100, if yep. I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was very mistaken. good, yeah. So, and That's, that's the times. same year
3: our sorghum, because our sorghum is right behind you, did like 120 as, as well on dry land. It was just, it was the perfect spot with the perfect conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean.
5: the good thing there was that we were able to see varieties yielding that much and also holding up protein. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was yep. very interesting. Because we know there is that negative relationship, but we could see that there is also a very strong genetic component on that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: So as, as we're getting ready for a presumable drought year when wheat production... I love going back to that. that no, I really don't. We were yeah, going to
2: pa- we were past
0: I that. I know, You're I know, on. but yeah, I'm we, bringing we, it back we in. Had, we were we talking, talking about, about, about the good
4: time. 100, 100, 100, <laughs> <Yeah>. 100 <laughs> bushels a week. 100
0: bushels a week. Hello, and I'm Dr. Reality. Just keep I'm here. On yeah. Dr. Reality. I Reality. Davey Downer. so what 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 kind of pressures usually come with a drought? It's aside from the heat and lack of water, but you don't really see the a, a rust drought or, or, or a, a rust uh, uh, influx in a drought year. What 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 pressures are there outside of heat and lack of water?
5: Okay, so very much like we saw this year, so we'll see increases in population of pests mm-hmm. that we had not seen in a long time, which was the the brown wheat mites. Mm-hmm. Uh, we won't see rusts because they do need some moisture, some dew, something to develop. So if it continues to be dry like this, it's very likely that we will not have problems with uh, root rots. Uh, we had some dryland root rots and so those type of uh, fungal will grow mm-hmm. on wheat, viral diseases. So if they do not control volunteer wheat producers, um, don't control volunteer wheat, we could have issues with that viral diseases. So we streak mosaic. Mm-hmm. We did have some issues with barley yellow dwarf uh, virus. So it could be a little mm-hmm. different uh, than we we, we can, are yeah. used to. Yeah. We
2: to so throw yeah. a lot of yeah. volunteer peer, like, because there's oh, places yeah. that since harvest, they haven't had any, right? Exactly. So, I mean and, and if it ever does rain, that volunteer is going to come and up. Yeah, I mean, if they haven't cultivated, particularly mm-hmm. at no-till. Uh, yeah, so balance. especially
5: this year, I would really pay attention to that.
2: Yeah, because mm-hmm. that the volunteer after you you know you plant, dust it in, then you get a stand that's ten times higher than what you want. <laughs> yeah, you have two bushels worth of freaking wheat thrown out of the <laughs> combine. I mean, that's a real scenario,
1: right?
5: Yeah, yeah, it, <clears throat> is, yeah. it is. It is. A- so,
2: Amanda, you, you,
1: you spoke of uh, working with cultivars from Australia and Spain. Um, tell us some of the work you're doing in Spain uh, with that. There's some collaborations going on with Spain, right?
5: Yes, there is. So I have a collaborator in Spain. He's a wheat physiologist. I've worked with him before. We have some papers uh, published already. And so the idea came up when he was visiting here us in November at OSU. And so I'll be leaving to Spain next week to, and I'm taking with me some data that our program has gathered in the past 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. So looking at that database, I think we have about 40,000, 50,000 data points to work with. So we'll be developing some science in Hopefully, bringing back very good information to our producers and actually using data from here generated from 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 the program at actual producers' fields here in Oklahoma. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm excited.
0: And and I mean, it's it's good to have that collaboration, not just within land grant universities across the U.S., but to have different perspectives from you know other continents
5: that's the key the different perspective is the is the key when we are trying to develop new things and have different understanding of things that sometimes we are all here looking at at it every day every day looking at the same things and and we kind of get used to things so having different perspectives on on the issues that we deal here and I think will be will be very very important, very interesting.
0: And and we need to have you back whenever whenever you get back from sure. Spain yep. and and you can kind of go through what what all you had.
5: Yeah. Yes, yep. for sure.
3: That doesn't just say drought all the time.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and thank you for listening in on this conversation of the Red Dirt Agronomy Podcast. And if you'd like to join in on the next conversation. Send us an email, podcast at reddirtagronomy.com, or send us a tweet. Our handle is reddirtag. We would like to thank Dr. Amanda Silva for joining us on the podcast today. And to find out more about her or any of our guests, along with any of the resources that we talked about today or on the podcast, visit reddirtagronomy.com. There you will find the show notes and you can listen to past episodes too. For Dr. Josh Lofton, Dr. Jason Warren, and Dr. Brian Ardell, I am Dave Deacon, and we would like to thank you for listening. The proceeding is a copyrighted recording of AgNow Media, LLC 2022. And yes, all rights are reserved.